There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. And to get to that, well, we urge you to keep it locked right here on MSNBC because the readout with Joy Reid <laughs> is up next. Hi, Joy. How you doing, Ari? Thank you very much. Have a great evening. Cheers. And good evening, everyone. We'll begin the readout tonight with what the White House hopes will be a pivot point in the fight for voting rights. This afternoon, President Biden and Vice President Harris gave a major joint speech in Atlanta, putting the full weight of the administration behind the push for new federal voter protection laws, even if it means that Senate Democrats have to go it alone. And the fact that they have to do it alone is notable. Take a look at this video. The year is 2006. Republican President George W. Bush is signing an extension of the Voting Rights Act. Now, standing there behind him is Missouri Senator Roy Blunt, who now thinks voting rights is a partisan issue. That 25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act was so bipartisan that both the majority and the minority leader were there for the signing. Oh, okay, right here, next to Hillary Clinton, is Senator Lindsey Graham, before he thought that protecting voting rights was a power grab. Fast forward to today, when the senator who will go into the history books as little more than a caddy to the disgraced, twice-impeached former president, said this. As to voting rights itself, I think this is the most hyped, manufactured issue in a long time. Now, let's just be clear. When we talk about voting rights legislation, we talk a lot about what President Biden should do, what Majority Leader Chuck Schumer could do. But what about the Republican Party that up until very recently unanimously supported and voted to renew the 1965 Voting Rights Act for decades? and who showed up at MLK Day church services bragging about it. Republicans joined majorities, reauthorizing the VRA five times, including that 98 to zero vote in 2006. And they were all signed in to law by Republican presidents. Republican support for the Voting Rights Act is Republicans' favorite talking point when you point out that their party has swapped places with the old Dixiecrats. So what happened? between 2006 and now to change their support. Well, for one, the first black president, Barack Obama, was elected and re-elected thanks to massive turnout from voters of color, giving the black Democrat an opening to shape the courts, including the Supreme Court. Well, Mitch and them couldn't have that. Republicans realized that voters of color could overwhelm them again in Georgia in 2020, electing Obama's former VP, Joe Biden, a black woman vice president, and Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. In other words, given open access to the vote, the increasingly diverse electorate was going to choose Democrats. So what are you going to do about a problem like democracy? Enter the former president's big lie, a convenient fiction that Republicans are gleefully using to lock those pesky voters out because their political survival is dependent on taking power, not earning it. Last year, all but one Republican voted to block debate on the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that was introduced to uncripple the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by John Roberts Supreme Court in 2013. 
16, 16 of those same Republicans who voted to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act in 2006 are still there, including none other than current Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Today in John Lewis's home district, President Biden called out those Republicans who refused to stand up to the disgraced former president's big lie, urging the Senate to approve the voting bill named for the late civil rights leader and another, the Freedom to Vote Act. I've been having these quiet conversations with the members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet. We must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that he plans to bring up the voting rights bills tomorrow. And while the president's support for the rules change is welcome, it's also why voting rights activists are frustrated, with several groups sitting out today's speech, preferring concrete action over yet another wonderful statement of principles. Conservative Democrats Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have already come down against any filibuster changes without buy-in from the same Republicans who have blocked not one or two, but three efforts to even debate voting rights. And today, without mentioning any senators by name, President Biden laid out the stakes for every single one of them. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. But the question now is what leverage does President Biden have to get them on the right side of history and get these voting rights bills passed now? Joining me now is Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large for the 19th. Jason Johnson, professor of journalism and politics at Morgan State University and host of the Slate podcast, A Word with Jason Johnson. And Sherilyn Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. <coughs> While well, I quickly cough, <coughs> excuse me, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. I'm going to start with uh, Aaron and Jason because the... Lay out for me, Aaron, the, the politics of what the president and vice president tried to do today. What was the political purpose of it? Yeah, well, you know, uh, what changed about, uh, you know, from, from, you know, 2006 when you had Republicans on board uh, and back when voting rights was a bipartisan issue, what changed uh, was, uh, you know, voting rights used to be part of both parties strategy towards expanding you know a, a strategy of expanding the electorate you know in 2012 when you had that GOP autopsy of you know kind of what went wrong uh, for, for them after the election the thought was you know they needed to expand they needed to try to appeal to a more diverse electorate to try to appeal to you know more uh, Americans and to get them to engage uh, with the Republican Party that strategy has since been abandoned and so when you no longer really have, a strategy of expanding the electorate, voting rights uh, is, is suddenly, uh, you know, not as bipartisan, bipartisan of an issue. So what we did see today down in Atlanta, uh, headed into the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday uh, on the campus of his alma mater, uh, Morehouse College, part of the Atlanta University Center in the district, as you mentioned, a former congressman, John Lewis, for whom one of these voting rights bills is named after is 
the president and the vice president really kind of using their bully pulpit to press for action in the Senate on voting rights. Of course, what we didn't hear was a specific plan, which is what a lot of those organizers who did not who were not in attendance today uh, for how this legislation is going to pass and what they are specifically willing to do to make that happen. I mean, you heard uh, both the pre president and the vice president talking about uh, how they plan to keep fighting uh, for voting rights. But what exactly is that going to mean? Uh, you know, the president and the vice president were preaching to the choir. Uh, you know, down in Georgia, yeah. we know that voters in that state did what they had to do in 2020 and then in January of 2021. But he did also call out some in the congregation. Right. Uh, but I guess revisionist history is kind of popular uh, these days. But, you know, literally the average age uh, in the U.S. Senate, 64.3 years old. Right. So he's literally uh, hoping uh, to channel their legacies, their literal obituaries, if you will, uh, <laughs> and ask, you know, what side of the bridge do you want to be on uh, tomorrow yeah. if, if uh, Senator, uh, Senator Schumer is to be believed? Everybody's going to have a chance to be on that proverbial bridge tomorrow and make a decision about which side of history, which side of our democracy they want to be on in casting their vote with yeah. cameras I, rolling, watching. But I mean, it's very clear, Jason, that I mean, when, when the history is written, Mitch McConnell is going to be remembered as the Strom Thurmond of, of our era. I mean, he used the filibuster more than anyone mm. has ever used it, probably in league with Strom Thurmond's use of it. And he used it to try to stop the first black president from being successful. Like, it's very clear he is going to be Strom Thurmond. We got that. The only question is how many James Eastlands are going to be. Let's play uh, Mitch McConnell first uh, on the his politics around the rules change. And then after that, I want to play Marco Rubio because he was part of what Aaron was talking about, this sort of vanguard of younger Republicans who Republicans at one point thought could bring them in more voters of color and younger voters. It didn't work right. out that way because they still have the same politics. Here's Mitch McConnell first. If my colleague tries to break the Senate to silence those millions of Americans, we will make their voices heard in this chamber in ways that are more inconvenient for the majority and this White House than what anybody has seen in living memory. And Marco Rubio, and I'm going to just, I won't even play it, but he's claiming that there's no widespread effort to suppress minority voting rights. Like he said that with a straight face, right? That's the story and they're going to stick to it. Is, are we at the point now where politically, because They've left themselves very little room to maneuver. We're just at a point where Republicans are going to get away with claiming they're not trying to stop people from voting and then literally stopping people from voting and stealing the elections after if people win, get what they want anyway. So, so first, Joe, I, I want to let you know that we don't know what the history books will say about Mitch McConnell, because if we talk about his voter suppression. Isn't that critical race theory? And aren't they trying to make that oh, illegal, right. too? So we, we don't even know. We don't know what the history books could say about this when we get there. Here, here's the problem. It's, it's very clear what their plan is. They want politicians to be able to pick voters instead of voters picking politicians. And here's why this is important based on what Biden said today. Look, it was a forceful speech. That's great. That's wonderful. The truth of the matter is Biden said at a town hall in October that he was in favor of some sort of reform. I want to jump us ahead, not just to the future of 50 years from now historically, but I want to jump us ahead to next week. So let's say the vote to reform the filibuster fails. What is the next step? 
What can this administration do? This is the plan that activists are talking about. Don't come down here without a plan. I have said before, you could send federal election monitors to all 50 states. Hey, if you're violating people's civil rights, we will snatch your highway money. Joy, you've made the suggestion. Attach infrastructure bill money to election reform. You can't get any of this $1.8 billion. You've had Van Newkirk at The Atlantic that said, hey, look, if you're suppressing votes, that could affect reapportionment. There are plans right here, right now, that Joe Biden could have talked about today for what he will do if the vote doesn't work. That's why people are frustrated. That's why history will judge him almost as harshly as it judges Mitch McConnell, because he hasn't used all the power at his resources and he hasn't added a stick to the carrot that he was trying to offer to some people today. Yeah, excellent points. Aaron Haynes, Jason Johnson, thank you both very much, my friends. I appreciate you both. And with that, uh, I want to bring in uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, because uh, you are the person that that I I hope has the answers to this question of what can be done next. Because you heard what, what Jason and Aaron said. There's not a lot of box left for President Biden other than the rhetorical box, which he used today and which Vice President Harris used today. So let's say the vote goes on the floor of the Senate and Manchin and Cinema decide to do the James Eastland. They decide we're gonna we're, we're rolling with we're rolling with that. We're gonna be the Strom Thurmond end of the party. Then what? Thanks, Joy. I appreciate it. Um, I think we all know that you know much of the power around election protection is going to rest with the Department of Justice. I don't have any worries that the Department of Justice will not pull out all the stops to do some of the important things that we need to protect the vote. That was the whole point of ensuring that there were, you know, former civil rights attorneys and voting rights attorneys um, in leadership. Um, the head of the civil rights division is Kristen Clark, an experienced uh, long, longtime voting rights uh, litigator of Vanita Gupta as the associate attorney general. So there will be things that can be done through the DOJ for sure. And I think many of the ideas that Jason talked about, um, and, and we have pressed the president on this since last year, use all your power and influence. I have to disagree with Jason that I don't think laying out what those threats are today would have been the best possible move, because I think you play out every hand that you're dealt. We're going to see what happens with this vote. Um, I think you're, you're, you know, right that we don't have much reason to believe the vote's going to go differently. You know, obviously, Joy, you know that civil rights groups asked the president to make the speech he made today last summer um, on July 9th when we met directly with the president. Um, he did make a speech in Philadelphia. He did not make the speech that he made today. Um, and as he said today, he chose to go the route of quiet diplomacy, which he thought would be um, effective. Obviously, it wasn't. And today he chose to speak publicly. If, if the truth is known, I'm not even sure today whether had he spoken publicly earlier, it would have made a difference. We'll probably never know, which drives me crazy. But honestly, after what I saw with Build Back Better, which the president publicly championed around the country and talked about nonstop and still had the chair pulled out from under him, uh, I I just I'm not certain it would have made a difference. But the point is that it's critical to use all of the presidential power and the bully pulpit is a big part of it. Speaking today to the Senate, to Manchin and Cinema, but also to the broader American public. This is not just about what black people, brown people, civil rights advocates want. This is a democracy moment. And the purpose, I think, of today was to put it in that context, particularly following so closely on his um, excellent speech about January 6th on the anniversary. No, indeed. And, and I think that is important to me because it, it's, get, get, it gets framed as if this is just an issue about black people. And it isn't. Because once you put on the table that you can simply ban groups that you don't want to vote, 
from voting and use all of these tricks to make it so so impossible and so onerous that they can't vote. That can be used on every anybody. Right. Do you think well, looking back? At, well, go on. No, I was just going to say that's exactly right, Joy. And that was true long before 2016 when Trump came to power. It was true in 2013. Um, just to, you know, the timeline, let's get, let's get straight about what happened. The Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County versus Holder case, which essentially, uh, you know, struck down the, that 2006 bipartisan vote to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, at least as regard to, regards to Section 5, um, really was the opening of the floodgates. It suggested now to uh, southern states that had been covered by preclearance and several northern yep. ones as well as, as the Republican Party that they could have a free for all. And they've been doing it ever since. And we've been sounding the alarm long yeah. before Trump came to power. And we need people to understand this is a democracy issue. This is not a niche issue for black people. So now we're in a crisis because what they were trying out just on black and brown people, they have now decided to run the tables on the whole nation. So everyone needs to wake up, say to me, what are you going to do next? I say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because at this point, it's hands on deck. Because if they're coming for us, they always start with with, with black folks and then they're going to come for the rest of you. That is the way it works. They want authoritarian control. They don't want the they don't want the vote at all. And I think you all need to wake up to that. Cheryl and Eiffel, thank you very much. Really appreciate you up next on the readout. Okay, for the first 75 years of his life, Donald Trump has always managed to stay one step ahead of the law. But there are new signs that his luck could be running out. Plus. You've advocated that your infallible opinion be dictated by law. You personally attack me and with absolutely not a shred of evidence of anything you say. Dr. Fauci fends off the Republicans' political attacks as we ask the question, how do we keep ourselves safe? from the millions of Americans who will never be convinced to get the COVID vaccine. Plus, I'll speak to the author of a brand new book on her belief that the U.S. is moving perilously close to a civil war. And tonight's absolute worst, through 20 years and four presidents, it remains an American disgrace. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have. 
That was Donald Trump's infamous call with Brad Raffensperger last January, in which he pressured Georgia's top election official to fix the vote in his favor. Notably, Trump asked Raffensperger to find the exact number of votes that he needed to carry the state, a choice of words that President Biden brought up in his speech in Georgia today. He didn't say count the votes. He said find votes that he needed to win. He failed because of the courageous officials, Democrats, Republicans, who did their duty and upheld the law. Trump's call was at the center of an ongoing criminal investigation in that state, led by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Now, Rachel Maddow has revealed that just last month, Trump's lawyers met in person with the DA's office. In other words, we might not know exactly what is happening in Georgia, but there's clearly movement in the case. That meeting last month may also explain why Trump threw a tantrum last, uh, just days afterward, when he put out an otherwise inexplicable statement. Trump ranted that, quote, all the Democrats want to do is put people in jail. Their DAs, AGs, and damn law enforcement are out of control. This is what happens in communist countries and dictatorships. Sounds like that meeting didn't go so well for him. Let's remember that back in October, the Brookings Institution put out a report highlighting a myriad of charges that Trump could soon face, including criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. And now the AP is reporting that a decision on whether to bring charges could come as early as the first half of this year. Meanwhile, the probe of Trump's business practices in New York also seems to be a source of heartburn for the Trump family. Yesterday, they filed for an emergency injunction to stop State Attorney General Letitia James from continuing her investigation. They wanted to recuse herself. And if Eric Trump's whining on Fox News is any indication, they are running scared. He was roundly mocked last night for making the laughable claim that it is unconstitutional for the state attorney general to investigate them. Take a look. She ran on the campaign promise of suing my father because she didn't believe in his political party, because she didn't like us, because the people in Washington, D.C. told her to do that. It violates the Constitution. It's unethical. It's wrong. And you don't need to take it from me. I mean, listen to the dozens of videos where I'm going to get him. I'm going to get his children. I'm going to take him down. This is what you'd expect from Russia. This is what you'd expect from Venezuela. This is third rate stuff. Ah, yes, the you can't sue my dad uh, allegory inside the Constitution. That's a, it's a real clause in the Constitution. In other words, in other news, I should mention that the January 6th committee issued three new subpoenas today, which we'll get to shortly. Joining now, Yumi Shalsador, anchor and moderator of Washington Week on PBS, who will soon be joining NBC News, left to the family, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Glenn, I am going to start with you. Uh, let me play one more little bit of Trump threatening the Georgia Secretary of State. This is Brad Raffensperger v. Trump. Uh, this is on January 2nd of last year. You've taken a state that's a Republican state and you've made it almost impossible for a Republican to win because of cheating, because they cheated like nobody's ever cheated before. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. Uh, Glenn, when you look at what Fannie Alexander, what A.G. Alexander is doing in, in Georgia, does it look to you like including meeting in person with Trump's lawyers and Trump and his lawyers that, they're, that she's building a conspiracy to commit election fraud case? 
Yeah, absolutely. And what a telling clip you just played, Joy, because not only was he trying to corruptly steal the election, he was threatening Georgia state election officials with retribution, retaliation. If they don't corruptly throw him the election, it is mind boggling the, the, the crimes he committed. But when I heard Donald Trump's unhinged statement, I believe it was back on December 17th. He was lashing out at district attorneys and state attorneys general and dem law enforcement agencies. The first thing this old prosecutor heard, and I said it back then, is somebody just told Donald Trump's defense team he's about to be indicted. Let me tell you, these meetings that we have with the defense teams of targets of our grand jury investigations, I've had many of them myself. Most often we have them in large scale corruption cases, fraud cases, white collar cases, not so much in violent crime cases. But what we do is right before we take that final trip into the grand jury and ask them to vote on criminal charges and return an indictment, we invite the defense team in. We say, listen, maybe we're looking at this wrong. If you have any exculpatory evidence, if you have any evidence that could exonerate your client, if we're barking up the wrong tree, maybe we didn't hear what we heard on the recorded call with Brad Raffensperger, unlikely, but still, we are inviting you to provide that exonerating information. And then you know what? We'll look at it and we'll assess it before we walk into the grand jury that one last time and ask them to indict Donald Trump. That likely happened, as we've now seen based on the reporting. That's what set Trump off. And it feels like, you know, the, the Georgia state prosecutors might be the first ones out of the blocks on the race for justice against Donald Trump. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to, to, to listen to that, um, Yamish, because in a sense, it's kind of Merrick Garland's worst nightmare, right? That that prosecutor Fannie Willis in Georgia is doing the job that the entire sort of democracy loving part of this country is throwing up their hands that he isn't doing. And so what are kind of the politics around the administration now potentially watching a let's just say there is an indictment. The Biden administration, clearly the Department of Justice, wants no part of what they see as anything that looks like a political prosecution. It feels like they would run screaming the other way, even though that would seem to be the just result if this man interfered in an election. Well, look, as you just said, the White House has said over and over again they want to be independent of the Justice Department because of the predecessor, of course, that being Donald Trump using the, the Justice Department like his personal attorney. So in some case, Mayor Garland is watching local officials do something that he himself is not doing. But let's also remember that at the height of this, we saw local officials. They were the ones that were standing up to Donald Trump. They were the ones who essentially were, were saving the Republicans, saying, we're not going to do what you said we're going to do. So in some ways, it's not surprising when you look at sort of how this has unfolded, how this sort of uh, uh, ability uh, or sorry, I should say this push to try to steal an election unfolded, that it was the it was the Republicans in Georgia who essentially said, stop, I'm recording your calls. I'm not going to be changing votes. We're going to certify this election. And let's think about the fact that Brad Raffensperger had the presence of mind to record this call because he knew that former President Trump was going to be saying something that was going to be problematic. And when you listen to this call, and it had been a while since I listened to it, but when you listen to this call, it is nothing short of a, of, of a clear sign from the former president that he wanted them to steal the election. He said at one point, it's OK for you to say you've 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 calculated again and found more votes. Um, you know, as someone who's from Haitian descent, that is what dictators say. That is what people who are trying to steal an election say to local officials to say, look, we just need you to tweak these numbers a bit for us. So in some ways, I think, yes, Mayor Garland is 
is probably looking at this a bit um, and possibly saying, you know, these local officials are moving faster than us. But Mayor Garland has also said he wants to hold people accountable. And you also have to remember that there's also the January 6th committee. They're also looking at specifically you know, on, on one team, local officials being pressured by the White House. But all of that is happening while the district attorney in Georgia is saying, well, you guys can all continue to look, but we have hard evidence for this specific situation. Yeah. And, and, you know, Glenn, you, you know, you've got the uh, Benny Thompson's committee there. They've committed they've uh, issued subpoenas, three new subpoenas. And these are people who are around Donald Trump Jr. But very quickly, Lindsey Graham also tried to pressure the Georgia uh, secretary of state to flip the election. We're talking about whether or not you can subpoena uh, on the Capitol Hill side, a United States senator or a United States member of Congress. Could he wind up in some trouble because he did it, too? He could. I'm quite sure uh, D.A. Fannie Willis is investigating this as a conspiracy, not as a standalone crime by Donald Trump. We've all seen conspiratorial conduct by any number of politicians, executive branch officials, you know, personalities like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone. And how can prosecutors not investigate the entire scope of the crime to determine, okay, is it a conspiracy? Was it an agreement between two or more people to commit a particular crime? And did at least one co-conspirator take that overt act? But when you mm-hmm. ask, Joy, about um, subpoenaing members of Congress, whether they be you know House members or senators, I hope the House Select Committee, which I think has been doing bang up work, I hope they finally take that leap and they subpoena a Jim Jordan or a Scott Perry or even a Vice President Pence so we can get that issue decided once and for all instead of forever yes. hesitating before we act. And maybe use some inherent contempt and just use, you know, flex their power while they still have it. Yamiche Alcindor, Glenn Kirshner, thank you both very much. You still ahead. Dr. Anthony Fauci spars with Republican senators in a no holds barred hearing on the response to COVID. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Threats upon my life, harassment of my family and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says, contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. Top infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci called out Senator Rand Paul during a congressional hearing today for doing what is clearly the Republican endgame, playing politics with people's lives. 
The harassment of Dr. Fauci by pro-Omicron armchair physicians illustrates what this country's up against, even as public health officials offered grim testimony about what lies ahead. Omicron is likely not to be the last curveball this virus throws at us. We do know the tests are picking up Omicron, but right now with less sensitivity than they did some of the other variants. Most people are going to get COVID, all right? And what we need to do is make sure the hospitals can still function, transportation, you know, other essential services are not disrupted while this happens. Well, with U.S. hospitalizations surpassing last winter's peak, our healthcare system is once again on the brink to the point that some healthcare authorities are forced to make what isn't even a choice, allowing nurses and other workers infected with COVID to stay on the job if they have mild symptoms or none at all. So me now is Dr. Libby Roy, COVID medical director for Housing Works in New York City. And uh, I don't know if people can see that you were wearing a Fauci shirt. I can see it. There. Oh, there we go. Um, Dr. Libby Roy, listen, if we're at the point where people think the answer to what we're dealing with in this pandemic is to, to threaten to kill Dr. Fauci and his family, which is where we are with anti-vax, anti-mask people, and to blame him for creating COVID somewhere in a lab, they think. Then I feel like we're at a point where we're not having a rational conversation about this pandemic anymore. And where those of us who are rational about it and who don't want to die from COVID, don't want to be on a ventilator, need to create a life for ourselves that accounts for the people who are refusing to participate in reality, but doesn't put us at risk to them. Is there a way to do that? Because I'm worried that our hospital systems are literally going to collapse. Yeah, happy uh, happy Tuesday and very cold <laughs> Tuesday to you, uh, Joy. Um, I watched the the hearing that was uh, today, the Senate hearing, and Dr. Fauci being attacked by Senator Rand Paul. I'm shocked that 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 Dr. uh, Sorry, that Rand Paul was a former physician because he does not exude any of the qualities that doctors and nurses uh, possess: empathy, compassion. And a pension for science and data to drive healthcare policies. Uh, and for him to go after, I mean, his insane, uh, atrocious vitriol directed towards a lifetime public servant and a highly trained infectious disease doctor like Dr. Fauci, it, it actually makes people like me and my fellow healthcare professionals double down on what we are doing, uh, provide high quality patient care, provide education and advocacy, through articles and op-eds and social media, it is just making us double down on what we are doing because it seems like, Joy, the, the rational folks are becoming the minority, and we are not, actually. We are the majority. We just have to be really loud about it and be advocate and be act- activists about this. It's the only way we're going to get through this pandemic, Joy. Yeah. Well, um, And by the way, just to note, uh, Rand Paul did create his own accreditation. He didn't get it from like a regular place. He just made up his own so that he could be accredited as a physician. I wouldn't let him operate on me if I, I was desperate. Um, let's talk about what other countries are doing, because at some point I feel like people who are willfully unvaccinated, fine, don't get vaccinated, but they need to start to pay a little bit more of the cost of what this is doing to our system. Uh, there are fines that, that are, uh, that are levied in places like Germany. Germany has stopped paying for the tests, the virus tests for people who choose to be unvaccinated. They've ended quarantine pay for those without vaccinations. Ikea, the company, is slashing sick pay for unvaccinated UK workers. If you are a smoker 
Insurance companies can charge you more. They can charge you a premium up to 50%. And you have to put that on the form when you apply for insurance. At some point, don't we have to make people who are just saying, I'm willing to take the risk to be unvaccinated, take the risk for me and take the risk for everyone I come in contact with. Shouldn't they have to pay more into the system because they are collapsing our health system? They're the ones in the ERs. They're taking it up. If you have a stroke or you have a heart attack, you can't get in the ER because they're taking up all the beds. So shouldn't they have to pay more? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sadly uh, aware of what's happening to hospitals and healthcare facilities all over the world. Hospitalizations in the United States increased 30% this past week. And what's happening is that this this atrocious strain, this massive strain on, on hospitals and medical facilities is resulting in hospitals being short-staffed, uh, doctors, nurses getting infected themselves. Uh, they're, they are uh, working long hours. They're depressed. They're demoralized. And so the there, there are many um, possible interventions that we can impose on the people who choose to continue to choose to be unvaccinated, uh, increase insurance premiums, um, creating uh, a, a list or a, a triage list. So when people come to the hospital, maybe one of the first questions we ask is, um, are you vaccinated? And then that will direct yeah. them towards a certain type of care because we already do that. I can guarantee you when a patient comes in short, short, shortness of breath, like my dad, he got hospitalized three times in the past two years with shortness of breath, but related to his congestive heart failure, causing pulmonary edema. The first question they ask almost every time is, are you a smoker? Um, I mean, yeah. he's not, and it didn't uh, direct the care, but these are, there are several things that we can do, but I'm not giving up on the people that remain unvaccinated, Joy. We still need to get them vaccinated. I think we need to find other measures uh, and mandates and other other measures that to, to really get them to get vaccinated. Yeah. That's really a, a, good, a major, uh, Joy. Mandates. I mean, look, I, I, I've given up. <laughs> I, I pretty much, we, we, we're, I mean, I, listen, I, I won't say I've given up, but I think at certain points, we have to prioritize the people who've done the right thing for two years, who are exhausted, who are sick of having to accommodate these people who are making other people sick. At a certain point, the people who have done all the right things need to get to be able to live their lives normally. And if people don't want to get vaccinated, they need to be willing to kick in and pay for their own risk. You want to take you want to jump out of a plane? You pay for that risk. Don't make the rest of us have to pay for it and lose our health system. That's me, not you. I will not put that on you. That's on me. Dr. Lippy Roy, thank you very much. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, the Justice Department forms a new unit dedicated to stopping domestic terrorists. Could this help us reverse what feels a lot like a slow slide toward a second civil war? My next guest has a stark warning for us, and we'll be right back. We face an elevated threat from domestic violent extremists. We've seen a growing threat from those who are motivated by racial animus, as well as those who ascribe to extremist anti-government and anti-authority ideologies. The number of FBI domestic terror investigations has more than doubled since the spring of 2020. As a result, the Department of Justice is forming a new domestic terrorism unit to fight the growing threat. The January 6th insurrection last year showed how far some of these extremists are willing to go to overthrow our democratic elections. And some experts are sounding the alarm that we could be heading toward a second civil war. Barbara Walter has studied civil wars around the world for 30 years. In her new book, she writes, it turns out that one of the best predictors of whether a country will experience a civil war is whether it is moving toward or away from democracy. And joining me now is Barbara Walter, professor of international affairs at the School of Public Policy, of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of the brand new book, How Civil Wars Start, 
and how to stop them. Very timely uh, that you are here now. Um, you serve as a CIA advisory panel member. You monitor countries around the world and predict the ones most at risk of civil war. The U.S. is now officially listed by a European think tank that studies these things as a backsliding democracy. Does, how close does that mean that we are in real life to descending into a civil war? So between 2017 and 2021, I served on this task force run by the U.S. government, and our it's called the Political Instability Task Force. And our job was to come up with a predictive model that helped the government predict where around the world political instability and political violence was likely to break out. And we looked at all sorts of factors. We looked at poverty, income inequality. We looked at how ethnically heterogeneous a country was. And only two factors came out significantly predictive. The first is what we call an anocracy. That's a fancy term for partial democracy. It's a country that has elements of democracy, but it also has elements of, of more autocratic government. The second factor is whether a country's population has broken down along ethnic, religious, and or racial lines and have formed a political party or political parties based on identity rather than ideology. And of course, uh, over the last five years, I've been looking at my own country and lo and behold, both of these factors have been emerging here and they've been emerging at a surprisingly fast rate. Yeah. I mean, we've always had um, racial conflict in this country. I mean, the country was built on yeah. enslavement and the defense of enslavement to the point of going to war. But, you know, I can recall when I was working on uh, my book, the third the, the book I did that was about Trump, talking with South Africans who said, wow. you know, that their white nationalist party that mm -hmm. ruled South Africa for a long time used to channel to Republicans saying you need to be the white defense party. They used to say that in the in the in, very openly in the 1980s. Yeah. And it feels now that the Republicans have taken that yeah. advice, that they have become yeah. the sort of def, the white defense party or the white Christian yeah. nationalist party. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Of the two factors, the most important one, the one that is most heavily linked to the outbreak of political violence is this ethnic factionalization. If you have political parties that no longer care about ideology or that's not what's bringing people together and instead it's race. And not only that, but the party then is looking to gain power to exclude everybody else, that's where you get violence. You've seen this in the Philippines where Muslims in the South, um, when Catholics started moving in and they started to lose their majority status, um, they tried to still compete in a system, but they couldn't, they didn't have the numbers. Yeah. And so they shifted to violence. If you look at the Assamese in, um, in India, as Bengalis started moving into their territory and they started to become a minority and what they perceived as their country, their rightful country, they then switched to violence instead. You saw it in Northern Ireland. You, you actually, you you see it in, uh, with the Palestinians in Israel as well. You see this over and over again. Here in the United States, we're in the midst of this grand transformation um, from a white majority country to a white minority country. That's going to happen around, um, uh, around 2045. Um, we're the first white majority country to go through this 
transit transition, but Canada is going to come after us. New Zealand is going to mm -hmm. be next. Australia is going to be next. And it's estimated by 2100, the white majority countries of Europe as well will have transitioned to white minority. And to a subset of the white population here, this is deeply, deeply threatening. And they, the extremists in that in that group, are willing to turn to violence to maintain their hold on power. They see the United States as, um, as a white Christian country, and they feel like they're justified um, to fight to maintain it. One last thing, we, we know who tends to start civil wars. Most people think it's the poorest groups in society or it's the right. immigrants or the groups that are most oppressed. They don't tend to start civil wars. They are disempowered. It's very hard for mm -hmm. them to start a civil war. The groups that tend to start civil wars are the groups that had once been dominant politically and are in decline. They're either losing mm. power or they have lost power. Um, the once powerful groups don't tend to go down without a fight. Yeah, very brilliant said, and I will note the Washington Post has a poll saying that one in three Americans say that violence against the government can be justified, citing fears of yeah. political schism and the pandemic. And it's kind of hard yeah. to start a white country if you import millions and millions and millions of Africans to do all the work and invade a place that already had lots and millions and millions and millions of indigenous people who weren't white. That ain't a white country, honey. So y'all started exactly. something that you thought you started and you didn't. Uh, Barbara yeah. Walter, thank you for pointing uh, out all of this. It's scary, but scaring is caring. Thank you so much. And coming up tonight's absolute worst, a festering open wound on America's conscience. You do not want to miss it. Exactly 20 years ago today, um, 20 years ago, four months to the day after 9-11, the first 20 prisoners from the war in Afghanistan arrived at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. But they weren't ordinary prisoners of war. The Bush administration labeled them as unlawful combatants, meaning that they had no rights under the Geneva Convention, giving the U.S. carte blanche to torture those detainees. Over the next 20 years, 780 prisoners were detained at Guantanamo, many held indefinitely and facing horrible conditions and human rights abuses. It came at an estimated cost of $540 million per year. 39 detainees are still there, 13 of them held indefinitely with no charges or plan for release. And the trial against the five men actually accused of planning the 9-11 terrorist attacks hasn't even started. In fact, that trial is scarred precisely because evidence obtained through the use of torture is not admissible in court. So why is Guantanamo still open? In 2006, a report showed that 55% of those detainees had not even committed hostile acts against the U.S. government. The U.N. called for the prison to close, and even George W. Bush said that he'd like to close it. Then he changed his mind. Then President Obama took office, winning his election on a groundswell of anti-war sentiment. He even made closing Guantanamo one of his first executive orders, saying it would be shut down within one year. We then provide... Uh the process whereby Guantanamo will be closed uh, no later than one year from now. We are not, as I said uh, in the inauguration, uh, going to continue with a false choice between our safety and our ideals. But he quickly ran into opposition from both parties and a lot of logistical issues, with Congress literally passing a bill preventing him from transferring any detainees to the United States and blocking the funding to close the gulag that came to be known as Gitmo. 
By the end of Obama's administration, 197 prisoners had left Guantanamo, but the prison remained open. When Trump took over, he rescinded Obama's executive order and threatened to fill the prison with some bad dudes. But thankfully, that never materialized. And now President Biden also has the goal of closing Guantanamo before he leaves office. But once again, he's been hamstrung by Congress with the defense bill continuing to block funding to transfer detainees. And his administration isn't acting like Guantanamo will close anytime soon. In fact, a brand new courtroom is being built there. The fact that Guantanamo is still open after 20 years with not much to show for it except for a legacy of torture and abuse is a national embarrassment. And that is why Guantanamo Bay and the politicians and officials that have kept it open are tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.